Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. In the past, scientists were called natural philosophers, and we are honored to launch our season two, No Man is an Island, having one of the leading epidemiologists, Professor Salim Abdul Karim. We will discuss potential COVID-19 vaccination, the hazards of vaccine nationalism, the significant milestones in HIV treatment, the inequality in medical care access, and other major challenges and transformation in South Africa's health system. Good morning, Professor Karim. We are honored to have you as a speaker here with us today. Just a few days ago, several pharmaceutical companies such as Pfizer and uh, BioNTech and Oxford and AstraZeneca announced more than 19% effective COVID-19 vaccine. According to you, what are the pros and the cons of a potential vaccine? If you ask me on Sunday, can we make a vaccine that is effective against the coronavirus? The answer would be, I don't know. We have never done it before. Well, on Monday, the announcement by Pfizer and BioNTech that they have in preliminary data, and it must be uh, pointed out that it's still preliminary data, we haven't seen the published paper yet, that they have shown that their vaccine prevents the coronavirus infection and can do so quite effectively. They claim over 90%. That, in scientific terms, is a momentous discovery. I mean, we have never in history been able to develop a vaccine that quickly against a new, a new and novel uh, uh, virus or bacterium, for that matter. So this is indeed important news, and the, it, it sets apart our perspective on the future of the coronavirus pandemic. It now means that a vaccine is feasible, a vaccine is possible, and that we could have a high efficacy vaccine. So what does that mean as far as the pros are concerned? It means that we can now clearly and in a very constructive way plan for a situation where we could control the spread of the virus through the creation of immunization, through ensuring that enough people have immunological protection that they are no longer at risk of acquiring this virus. So that, from the point of view of the world, that this virus has caused upheaval in health, in, in the economy of the world, in the way in which we can relate to our fellow humans with the isolation and the lockdowns that we've had, the impact it's had on other diseases, all of that can be a thing of the past. Though we will always live with this threat, we will not live with it in the same kind of way that we have up to now. What are the cons? Well, the first is, we don't actually know the results yet. We have to see what they are. We need to be convinced that they are genuine and that they are reliable. 
the vaccine needs to be approved. It needs to go through a regulatory authority or the World Health Organization, and it needs to be accepted that the vaccine is safe and is effective. There are also lots of unanswered questions. For example, does this vaccine protect against severe disease? Does it protect the elderly as effectively as the young people? And a very important question is, how long is it effective for? Will it protect us uh, you know, in a year from now, in five years from now? We need to know those answers. We don't have those answers as it stands right now. From a logistical point of view, a major shortcoming of this particular vaccine is its storage conditions. Remember that this Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is a completely novel technology. Using messenger RNA has been a technology that's shown great promise in the past, but we've never yet been able to make a vaccine with it that's been effective. And so this opens up the door to a world of vaccines. Now that we know how this can be done, you can imagine the opportunities to create vaccines for many other diseases using this technology. But this technology comes with its downside. And the, the fact that it needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees for stability becomes a major challenge. It means that this vaccine is not really practical as far as broad-based community immunization in uh, you know, middle and low-income countries. So this is a vaccine that will have limited uh, impact in terms of its reach in the developing world. At most, it would be a vaccine that could be provided in healthcare facilities to healthcare workers, where th those kinds of freezers are available in laboratories. But other than that, this vaccine will have limited reach. We also don't yet know what the full cost is going to be of this vaccine, whether it's going to be affordable. And the fact that it needs two doses is also a bit of a downside because it's always logistically a major challenge to provide two doses. Having said all of that, there are 10 other candidates that are in advanced trials where results are going to become available over the next few weeks. We are looking forward to those as well. In some of those vaccines, there are single doses. In some of those vaccines, there are no special requirements for storage. Some of those vaccines use existing technology that's quite easy to store and quite easy to use and well known. So we can look forward in the next few months to a world in which we are likely to see many more candidates and vaccine, uh, COVID-19 vaccine candidates show promise in early results. How that promise is then transformed into actual on the ground vaccination coverage is going to be our challenge. And one of the biggest issues we're grappling with as a world is this concept called vaccine nationalism a really dark side where we're seeing wealthy countries buying up available vaccines from companies before they even know the results, using their financial clout to secure vaccines for their countries at the expense of others. It's sad. It's sad because fundamentally, it's not really possible 
for one country to believe that they are safe when the rest of the world is unsafe. We are fundamentally interdependent. And this, this virus, the coronavirus, has shown us the importance of our interdependence. How a virus that starts in one country spreads throughout the world so quickly. So we need to carefully redress this issue. And it's already being done through a, a vaccine facility called COVAX, which is uh, uh, an attempt for countries to come together to buy vaccine in bulk and to distribute it in an equitable manner. And this is being run by, the, uh, by Gavi, CEPI, and the World Health Organization. And I think that it, it fundamentally addresses this issue of global, in, of global equity in vaccine distribution. Just to clarify, Professor, in one of your interviews when predicting the second wave of the coronavirus, you mentioned that even though the reason for uh, another stream of virus spread varies from one country to another, it is most likely the release of restrictions that caused it generally. Should the restrictions remain severe to prevent future outbreaks? Um, in short, is this our new reality until vaccination takes another level? It has been striking to me to look at the evidence from countries that have been experiencing a second wave. In an analysis of 49 countries that have experienced a second wave, about half of them, uh, sorry, that have experienced the first wave that's complete, about half of them have had a second wave. And of those who have had a second wave, the second wave was worse than the first in about half of them. So if one just looks at the statistics, one gets a feeling that it's a 50-50 chance as to whether you'll have a second wave and what the shape and form that second wave is going to take. From the point of view of countries that have had a second wave, there have been three things that have contributed to it predominantly. The first is that countries have been experiencing increasing pandemic fatigue. They have, been in, they have been dealing with the problem of complacency because we depend on social distancing, mask wearing, hand hygiene to keep this virus at bay. But I can understand, it's tiring. We are fed up. We want us to go away. We want our lives back. I, I, I feel for people when they, when, they, when they go through this and they say, I, I don't want this anymore. But this virus is still with us. We are seeing now nearly a million cases a day. We are in the midst of a major pandemic. We've got to keep our uh, prevention measures in place. We've got to be careful and uh, very vigilant about ensuring that we do so, and we do so very carefully. So, the complacency has been one of the important ways in which the second surges have occurred. The second has been through the premature uh, release of restrictions. For example, in Spain, in order to protect the hospitality industry in the summer, 
they released restrictions early so that the British tourists could come in. Well, that led to the second surge in Spain, which is much worse than the first surge. So one has to be careful that in releasing restrictions, they are done with due consideration that they do not lead to a second wave. And then the third has been super spreading events. This is either at universities or at religious functions or at big parties and events that we have seen a resurgence of cases that have spread in these kind of super spreading events. So complacency, the issue of super spreading events and premature release of uh, restrictions have led to second waves in many countries. If we are to prevent the second wave, we've got to ensure that we deal with at least those three things in a scientific manner, in a way in which that takes into account the risks that are associated with each and continues to promote our standard public health prevention measures for the coronavirus. Thank you for this insightful answer, Professor. Um, in 2014, you said that the HIV epidemic continues to be the major challenge, nevertheless the incredible success that have been achieved in this direction. Um, how have the situation and the conversation shifted over the past six years? When we first dealt with the HIV epidemic, we dealt with it with our hands tied behind our backs. We didn't know enough about this virus. We didn't know fully how it spread. We didn't have a test initially, and we were doing very complicated tests like Western blot. And it took a long while before we you know, managed to understand the virus enough. It took us years before we had a good test. It took uh, what about almost two years before we had a test that we could use. So, I have been through epidemics where we have really tried to control a virus without the availability of diagnostic, therapeutic, and vaccination tools, as we do in HIV. Today, of course, we have excellent diagnostics for HIV. And for me, a transformative event in HIV has very important implications for COVID. And that transformative event was when you can walk into any facility and within five minutes, we can tell you whether you have HIV or not. That's a rapid point of care test. That was transformative. Until then, it took two days to tell whether somebody had the virus. They often didn't even come back with the results. Uh, and that's what we're grappling with in COVID. Now there are new rapid tests. Those could be a game changer. They could give us the ability to know who's got this virus straight away. The second transformative event in dealing with HIV was our ability to treat the disease. Treatment and the use of antiretrovirals transformed HIV from a death sentence to a disease that became a long-term chronic manageable condition. 
in the coronavirus epidemic. We don't yet have such a treatment. And fortunately for the coronavirus, we don't really have a long-term carrier state, but we do now know that there are a sizable number of people that experience long COVID. They continue to have symptoms like tiredness, loss of concentration, cardiac complications over many months after they've had this disease. So we're learning from one disease and we're using it for another. Our situation in HIV today is we are now doing superbly in being able to roll out treatment. And that's largely thanks to global solidarity through things like the Global Fund, through PEPFAR, where wealthy governments have provided funding so that poorer countries will be able to access medical care and drug treatments for HIV. So that you are not dealing with a death sentence just because you've had the misfortune of having been born poor. That has been a transformation in how we have tackled HIV. You can now access free treatment for HIV in almost every country that is poor, and largely because of this kind of global solidarity. I think that we have much to learn from that that would benefit us in COVID-19. Following your thoughts, Professor, and to kind of delve deeper into this crucial subject, uh, despite the significant milestones and progress in treatment, as you just mentioned, globally it's estimated that more than 36 million people are living with HIV with acute challenges faced by South Africa as having the biggest HIV epidemic in the world. In what way is the healthcare system in South Africa uh, different from other high-income communities and what are the major challenges you're facing every day? When one looks at the global HIV epidemic, about one in every five people living with HIV in the world lives in South Africa, one country has one-fifth of all the people living with HIV. Such is the enormity of the burden of the HIV epidemic in South Africa. We could not just manage this disease. We could not just provide about seven and a half million people with treatment if we use the very traditional way in which you provide treatment. We just don't, wouldn't have enough doctors, enough pharmacists you know, to do that. We've had to innovate. We've had to find workable, novel solutions that protected safety, but ensured that we could provide treatment, provide care, and provide prevention programs in a way that could reach out and get to those communities where it was most needed. And we've been able to do that. One of our weapons, I'll call it, if you like, a secret weapon, is the use, the way in which we involve communities and have community healthcare workers going house to house, 
ensuring that those who are HIV positive have access and are taking their antiretroviral treatments. And also, they provide a whole range of services, including assisting mothers to ensure that their children are vaccinated, ensuring that pregnant women get to the clinic for their regular clinic visits. So community healthcare workers on the ground where the people are is an empowering process of providing care. And that for us has been one of the mechanisms we have used in our response to the global, to the HIV epidemic in South Africa in order to provide healthcare to the millions that need it. Importantly, that basic infrastructure is now available for many other things. We, for example, in our early response to the COVID-19 pandemic, mobilized about 60,000 community healthcare workers to go house to house in our most vulnerable communities to screen individuals for symptoms of COVID-19. And those who had any symptoms to refer them for, treat, for, for, uh, for testing and then onwards for treatment. So we as a country have had to find ways to care for and to provide treatment for the many millions that have needed it for HIV. And we've used that as a springboard to increase access, to increase equity, and to ensure that those who are vulnerable in our society are able to access medical care. Um, just to pick up the point, uh, when you mentioned the increasing access of medical care for the most vulnerable, I was wondering, what are the urgent reforms that South Africa needs for a better and efficient delivery of quality health care? South Africa as a country has a very high level of inequity. We have the rich and we have the poor. In dealing with providing health care in the context of such inequity, we have in our society a two-tier medical care service. We have private medical insurance for about 16% of our population who can afford it. And for the other 84%, we provide them with government services. Of course, the private healthcare services are much more expensive. In fact, about half of all the money spent on healthcare in South Africa is spent in the private sector to care for 16% of the people. So we have a problem. We have a problem with very substantial inequity in the availability of quality services. It is a problem that we've been trying to address. And a few years ago, it was decided that as a country that fundamentally accepts that health is a human right. Not, it's not a commodity that those who can afford should buy, but it's a human right. And so we made a decision as a country to move towards a much more equitable healthcare system. We call it national health insurance. It's modeled on national health insurances in many other countries. 
And we have a 15-year program to go from where we are of an inequitable two-tiered healthcare system to a unitary health, national health insurance system because it can't be done overnight. We are now, I think, in about year four of this 15-year program. I'm not sure if we're going to get there, but we've got to find some way to address the challenges in our healthcare system. And the national health insurance is one such mechanism to do that. I think as we move forward, there is no debate in South Africa that we believe fundamentally, as Nelson Mandela, our beloved ex-president put it, that we need to care for our fellow human beings. We need to care for our fellow citizens. That we cannot perpetuate a system where we believe we can do something at the expense of others. And so our mutual interdependence is captured in the concept of Ubuntu, which basically refers to I am because you are. I am safe because you are safe. That concept is very fundamental to who we are as a nation. And for that, we have chosen to go on a path to have a healthcare system that realizes that very fundamental belief of Ubuntu. Thank you so much, Professor, for this truly inspiring conversation. And, well, we wholeheartedly believe that science will get us through these challenging times. It's indeed a pleasure for me to hear you found it inspirational. I, I live with inspiration every day. I, I work with people who inspire me every day. And I, I, I take that inspiration and it gives me the strength to take on each day. So I hope in your own lives that you are coming across people like that who will inspire you every day, who make life worth living, who ensure that in the midst of the, the humdrum of daily activity that we realize that we live for a higher calling, that we live because we can make a difference and that when we die, we will leave the world a better place.